you're looking for a, a lighthearted comedy, I watched uh, recently a movie called Meet the Parents. Some of you may know Ben Stiller is in it and Robert De Niro, and it's kind of a silly movie. Um, but it surrounds the premise of a man who has been dating a woman for quite some time and yet has never met her parents. He has decided that he would uh, really like to become more serious with her, in fact, plans on marrying her, and so she suggests that uh, they come to visit her parents over a weekend because her sister is going to get married. So they go and they visit the parents, and of course, everything that could possibly go wrong does. They're playing a, a friendly game of volleyball, and the man, uh, played by Ben Stiller, spikes the ball and happens to hit the bride in the nose and break her nose just in time for her wedding. That's kind of unpleasant. Or there's another time where he has been warned that the toilet leaks a little bit, and so not to use the one downstairs, but of course in the middle of the night he gets up and uses it, and it leaks, and then it fills up the septic field, and so the backyard that intended to have the wedding there turns into a smelly mud pit. It is a funny movie to watch, but I must admit that there are some very cringy moments in it as well, because honestly, we look at that and we see that hilarity ensues through the movie, but it does remind us that there are many times where we ourselves are in similar situations and they don't seem very funny at all while we're in them. We've all had experiences where maybe we're going on a first date, or maybe we're meeting our uh, girlfriend's parents for the first time, or we're starting a new job or starting at a new school, maybe even starting in a new church. You go there and what is your thought? Your thought is these people will have some expectations. They'll have preconceived notions about what I'm all about and they will uh, come and evaluate me as I enter there, judge me, and perhaps judge me harshly because I don't meet their expectations. It's often an anxiety prone experience because we know what it's like to be rejected because we don't meet the expectations that other people have for us. I mention that because today's gospel centers around an episode in Jesus's life where he does not meet the expectations of those who have known him all his life. Jesus visits his hometown of Nazareth and is rejected. I think this is a lesson uh, along with the lesson of Jesus sending out his disciples that teaches us some important things about Christian life. It teaches us, first of all, a lesson about accepting Jesus for who he is and not trying to fit him into our preconceived expectations. But it is also a lesson, I believe, that emphasizes our hospitality and generosity of spirit to those who come in Christ's name. So what's happening in this passage, and why does it teach us the things that I say it teaches us? Well, if you were listening as I was reading earlier, we hear of how Jesus visits his hometown of Nazareth. Now, Mark doesn't really tell us much about Jesus's early life. Matthew and Luke tell us some details, but Mark doesn't get into it very much, other than telling us he comes from this little village called Nazareth. But a lot of it, he, I think, assumes we could make, uh, uh, could know easily just by the context about what Jesus will be facing when he visits that hometown. Jesus is the son of a carpenter, Joseph, and so Jesus is, uh, we're told here, a person who is known around the village as a carpenter. So Jesus has then gone off when he probably reaches about 30 years of age. He's baptized, as we've heard uh, read earlier, and he goes off to begin his ministry. He does great and mighty things. We've heard over the past few weeks of how Jesus has uh, uh, been preaching in house, and some people hear about his fame and his healing power, and so they rip open the, the roof, and they put their friend down on a pallet, and he's paralyzed and hasn't been able to walk, but Jesus tells him, get up and walk, and he walks. 
We heard the story a couple weeks ago about how Jesus is uh, uh, in the, the boat asleep and the people are afraid as they're crossing the lake because a giant storm comes up and then Jesus wakes up and he says, stop, be still to the storm and it stops and a dead calm uh, is created over uh, all of the sea. We missed last week because we had different readings focused on the indigenous peoples of Canada, uh, a very powerful service, I think. But what we did miss was Mark's gospel telling us what happens just before this episode in Nazareth, how Jesus literally raises a little girl from the dead. Amazement seizes people. Mark leaves us to imagine the kind of rumors that are spreading around Nazareth about this local boy done good. And Jesus comes back to the synagogue he was raised in, probably the place he went to uh, uh, school and learned Hebrew at the feet of rabbis there. And Jesus comes and, and then people, instead of welcoming him, say things like, where did this man get all of this? What is this wisdom that's been given to him? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Maybe hard for us to understand why people would do that, and yet if you place yourself in the shoes of those villagers, you can imagine what they're thinking. Here's this guy preaching powerfully at the synagogue, but didn't he put in my cabinets at my, my house? Wasn't he the, the quiet kid who never really spoke very much? And uh, didn't I date his sister a couple times and take her out to the camel races a few weeks ago? This guy? This guy with calloused hands, the carpenter guy who never had a real education, this person who is the ordinary uh, Joe that I've known all my life, and he comes on putting on airs about being the Messiah and about having this great mission? Well, frankly, I want nothing to do with it. And that's exactly what they do. They have nothing to do with him. In fact, we're told in interesting little detail he could do no deed of power there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. Now, that in itself is pretty impressive. But I think it's not talking about Jesus being unable to do something. I think, in fact, it's telling us that the villagers were unwilling to have him do something. Again and again, through his gospel uh, episodes, we find that Jesus doesn't seek out the sick. Instead, the sick seek him out. Those men I told you about drop their friend in Jesus' lap practically, and that's why he heals them. Or Jesus walks into Jericho, and a blind man says, have mercy on me, son of David. Jesus heals them because their faith leads them to come to Jesus to be healed. And the people in the village of Nazareth say, I don't really want it. And so they don't even bother coming to Jesus for the chance to be healed of their oppressions and their illnesses. Now, this is a story of rejection, and it may resonate with us for the times that we feel we've been rejected by family or friends or people who have preconceived notions about us. But I think this is, in fact, a challenging message that tells us not just to look to how Jesus understands our sorrow at being rejected. He does. But I also believe it's a message that tells us it's entirely possible for us to be like those villagers of Nazareth. That just as Jesus knocked on the gates of Nazareth and found them bolted shut, Jesus can knock on the gates of our heart and find that we have no place for him because we have Jesus figured out we have our preconceived notions about who he is meant to be, and for that reason, we do not let him be who he really is. I think it reveals to us the danger that can exist, the gulf that can exist between calling Jesus Lord and let him actually be the Lord. 
As an example of how this works, I was thinking back to a time when I was at seminary at Wycliffe College in Toronto. You may know it, it's across the street from a less reputable Anglican seminary. Uh, but one of the great things about Wycliffe College is, is that it's, yeah, I know, <laughs> Alana went to that uh, disreputable place. Um, just kidding. Wycliffe College has a number of students who come there not from an Anglican background. And so it often made for interesting discussions when we would have classes. I remember one class I took on pastoral care, and on the first day, the professor asks us, uh, just to get to know us a little bit better, I think, if you were to describe Jesus with one word, uh, what would you use? And so we all wrote down our answers and put them in a hat, and he pulled them out at the front of the class. And uh, in this class that's largely full of Anglicans, we would hear lots of things we'd expect. He pulls one out, and Jesus is forgiving, and lots where Jesus is loving, and Jesus is comforting, and Jesus is merciful, and all things that are very true. But what I really remember, what stands out is, is that among all of the class of maybe 20 or 30 people, he pulls out one that really stood out. Somebody had written, Jesus is dangerous. And he asked, you know, who, who wrote this? Would you like to explain why you said that? And so the person stood up and explained that they aren't an Anglican. They're a Pentecostal. Now, there's pros and cons. I don't want to get into the differences, but one thing about the Pentecostal faith uh, amongst the different denominations of Christian faith is that they tend to focus on God being a very active God who is not only capable, but often calls people out of their comfort zone to do things that challenge them. And she said that in her experience, Jesus is quite dangerous because he often calls people out of their comfort zone. You know, I remember from that episode the danger that can exist amongst us who have, uh, I think, a strong faith, a good church, and yet sometimes we hold on to those parts of Jesus that we find most comfortable, find most easy, and sometimes ignore those parts of Jesus' character that make our lives uncomfortable and pull us out of our comfort zones. If you look through the Gospels, it doesn't take very long before you see Jesus showing examples of being very uncomfortable for people, even being dangerous. We hear in John's gospel, when Jesus calls his first disciples, some interesting words. We see John the Baptist has been preaching, and he's attracted a disciple named Andrew. And when John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, Andrew hears him, and he recognizes this is a person to follow. And so he asks his brother Peter to come and listen to Jesus, and so Peter does. It's all a very interesting thing, and Peter and Andrew are both fishermen, and then they listen to Jesus, and then uh, they spend all day with him, and I'm sure they're fired up by his preaching and recognizing that in their midst is someone who might be that Messiah they're looking for. And then what do they do? They go back home. They go back fishing. Until one day, they see Jesus walking along the seashore, and probably they're excited. Jesus is making a personal visit. Maybe he wants to pray with me or share me some more uh, life hacks about how I can be a better fisherman or, or maybe even, you know, just a, a better, more spiritual person. And instead, Jesus says to Andrew and to Peter, come and follow me. He doesn't say where. He doesn't say what it will involve. He simply says, come and follow me. And so they do what? They leave their nets, along with James and John, further down the seashore, and they follow Jesus even to the cross. They came, I'm sure, looking for something from Jesus and found something quite different. Jesus called them to follow him, even though they didn't know where that would be. 
Jesus does this oftentimes when he debates with the Pharisees and they come to expect what a Messiah is supposed to be like as a person who spends his time with the holy and the righteous people and they are shocked that Jesus calls them instead to eat with tax collectors and to eat with sinners. Jesus shakes those expectations up because he tells them to do something quite different than what they're comfortable with. And in perhaps the most famous episode of all of Jesus subverting expectations, a rich young ruler who seems to have his life all figured out, a person who is wealthy and lives in comfort, a person who has followed the commandment since his youth, he says, comes to Jesus and said, Jesus, what must I still do to inherit eternal life? I've got my life together. I'm pretty safe. I'm pretty comfortable. Jesus, give me some little hint to tweak my life a little bit so I can be even better and I already am. And Jesus, we are told, loves the man. And he looks at him and says, there's only one thing that you need to do. It's really a simple thing, really. Just sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And the man's face falls, and he's disappointed, and he leaves quite sad. Because the Jesus that he expected to get was not the Jesus that he did get. Jesus who upturned his life and made things very uncomfortable for him. Indeed. We look at those kinds of examples, and I think it's not uh, hard to figure out why it is we have a hard time accepting Jesus for who he is. We have comfortable lives, we have families, we have mortgages, we have a way in which our life is working out, and we worry sometimes that the Jesus who is really wild and fierce and dangerous might call us to things that we're scared to do, and make us leave behind some things that, are difficult, that we are quite comfortable with. To help us understand why that's, in fact, not something that allows us to grow and to be transformed and made holy, and why being comfortable is simply selling short what our faith is about. I was brought back to an episode in C.S. Lewis's famous story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you know that story, it's a great children's story, but good for adults to read as well. But two, our four children from England are sort of transported to another dimension where animals talk and magic happens on an everyday basis. Well, while they're there, they hear a rumor while they're speaking to a couple of talking beavers about someone called Aslan. C.S. Lewis wrote Aslan as a kind of Christ figure in Narnia. And when the children first hear about this Aslan person, they're intrigued. This is what they say after learning about him. Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I had thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I think that's so illustrative about what we're in for when we put our hand in the hands of Jesus. He's not promising to be safe, but he is promising to be good. He loves us. And when he transforms people, calls them out of their comfort zone, he transforms them not because he hates them or wants to inflict difficulties on them. He calls them out of their comfort zone because he wants what's good for them. He loves them and he wants them to grow. One of the things that makes Jesus so compelling to so many people through the Gospels, and I think is at the heart of why he's been compelling to people through the centuries, and still compels us 2,000 years after his earthly ministry, is that Jesus takes those who feel that their situation can never change, people who are bound in so many different ways, and he frees them to become what they were meant to be. And that means leaving behind some old patterns that are damaging and weigh people down, but it also means opening the gate to a whole new way of life that frees people up and helps them to become what they're meant to be. 
Peter, I told you, drops the safe and comfortable life in which he is mending nets and living probably as generations of his ancestors had done. But in the process, as Peter follows Jesus even to the cross, a man who fails at the moment of truth, what happens to this man who speaks big but acts little? He is transformed through following Jesus even to the cross, transformed to become a person who is a giant of faith and inspired and continues to inspire people through what he said and what he did. We find the uh, person who is inhabited by a legion of demons in the, in the place of the Gerasenes. Jesus cast those demons out. A man who didn't even know his name, but instead was named only by the things that afflicted him. Jesus cast them out, and people are shocked and amazed that this man who is a raving lunatic now sits peaceably with his right mind and becomes a powerful witness for who Christ is, all because he allowed Jesus to transform him. You can become something wonderful and great if you take on the adventure of faith with Jesus as he really is. Not to fit him into a box, not to prevent him from acting in your life, but instead to say, Jesus, I know you scare me a little bit. You ask me to do things that I'm not comfortable with, but just as a good parent forces you sometimes to do things you don't want to do, but because he cares for you and wants you to grow, I trust that you are a divine parent who loves me who asks me out of my comfort zone because you know what is good for me, and you know that by growing I can be a more faithful and effective witness in this troubled world that deeply needs graceful and effective witnesses. Here, I think, is a challenge for us to start asking Jesus, not do this for me and do that for me, but instead to start asking Jesus, what do you want from me? What do you want? When we make choices as parents, when we make choices about romantic relationships, choices about our school or our jobs or the significant things of our lives, are we willing to say, Jesus, not my will be done, but yours? What do you want of me? Because I will follow when you say, come follow me. It will not be easy, but what we'll have in front of us throughout that entire time is a captain who leads us, leads us through the strife and troubles of life, even leads us through the personal struggles of growth so that we might emerge victorious and grow and be the mature people that God wants us to be. Put your hand in Jesus' hand and be amazed at what he can do with you if only you trust him. Now that is a challenging thing, but I also think there's another challenging thing that I'll say briefly as we look at the second portion of the story. After Jesus is rejected at Nazareth, we find something interesting, that the very next thing Jesus does is that he equips his disciples and then sends them out to places where they too may be rejected. But here's what's really, really interesting to me about this story. It's not just what happens with the disciples and how they're equipped by Jesus. It is that Jesus doesn't just challenge his disciples, he also challenges an implicit challenge in all the villages that they will visit. We know that there's a challenge to these villages because of what he tells his disciples to do and what to bring. So Jesus gives his authority to the disciples over unclean spirits, and then he says something interesting. He says, take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts. Wear sandals, don't put on two tunics. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. And if any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. What are the disciples supposed to do when Jesus sends them out without anything? My daughter, as we speak, is packing because she'll be spending the next several weeks over the summer uh, becoming a a camp counselor at a camp 
for overnight students to go to. And so it would be absurd for me to say, you know what, don't bother bringing anything. Just go out there. No, I've gone over a hundred times. Bring mosquito spray, bring your antihistamines, make sure you bring the proper clothes and you bring this and this and the other thing. That is the wise, responsible thing to do because I do not want her to be like Blanche Dubois in A Streetcar Named Desire, to rely on the kindness of strangers. Look after yourself. But Jesus instead says to the disciples the very opposite. He says, I want you to go out there and I want you to rely on the kindness and generosity and hospitality of the villagers. I think this is a challenge for us. Not only to say, Jesus, in our prayer life, our spiritual life, we want to let you be who you are and to open our hearts and hospitality to you. We also are challenged, I think, in this passage to open our hearts and our lives and hospitality to those that Jesus sends in his name. Jesus says, yes, if you shake off, the feet, uh, shake off the dust off your feet as a testimony against them, he is warning the many people that will be rejecting those disciples because he says that when I come to you, I expect even when I come to you in faces that do not seem recognizable or obvious, I want you to be hospitable and generous in spirit. One of the more chilling passages Jesus has in the Gospels comes from Matthew when Jesus speaks about his coming judgment. He says, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left and the king will say to those at his right hand, come you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you for the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food? Or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you? Or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them. Truly I tell you, just as you did it to the one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Jesus says, many times people come to you and you do not expect that it is in fact the face of Jesus you're seeing, and I will evaluate your conduct based on how you treat them. This is a challenge to us, I think, because so often we ignore the times that Jesus comes to us, and instead of acting with generosity and hospitality, we can ignore him. Most of you will know that I have several children. I got four of them at home. And one of the things that I have been convicted of lately and I often fall down at it is how often my youngest daughter, at the end of the day and I've been busy and I feel like I deserve a break, I'll be playing video games or scrolling through social media and some ridiculous stuff I won't even remember. And she'll come down and she'll put her hand on my arm and say, Daddy, could you read to me before I go to bed? Believe me, it is a very hard thing for me to say yes. And I look at passages like this and I think to myself, well, this here is one of the least of Christ's brothers and sisters. She is my little girl. And she wants her daddy to read to her. Why? Well, she can read herself because she wants to know that I love her and I want to spend time with her. And she wants me to be, although she can't explain it, wants me to be a reflection of the Heavenly Father who loves her and loves spending time with her. And so my challenge often in those times is to say, yes, I see you, Jesus, in this child and I will make time for you, be hospitable, and give you my whole self. Here's another example. Think about the uh, announcement we heard just a few moments ago. The announcement about people being needed for the Canada Food Cupboard. 
Here in our community, we find the least of our brothers and sisters, those who cannot put and make ends meet. They can't put together enough money to buy groceries for themselves and for their family. I can't give time, I know. I know that I have a family, I have commitments that mean that I can't necessarily give the time that they need, and that may be true for you, but have you asked, Jesus? Maybe it is that you are a person sitting here today saying, well, in fact, Jesus, I know I have the time. I know I have the capability. Are you able to say to Jesus, yes, Jesus, I see you coming to me in these people, and so therefore I will give my time and my energy to help them? Or consider the church. You know, here in the church, of course, we're preparing for COVID uh, to come to an end. We're looking forward to the day when we can gather once again. And what do we need so desperately? We need more people who are willing to give of their time and their energy and their effort as people who come and sanitize different aspects of our church to greet and to be sides people and to read and to be intercessors and to serve in the altar guild. And are you letting Jesus speak to you and asking him, maybe, Jesus, are you asking me to show hospitality and generosity with my time? Or consider even the situation our church is in, like so many churches today, where we find our financial challenges are greater because COVID has reduced our income. Have you asked Jesus lately whether you're giving what he wants you to give? When he comes to you through a message like this, through the music and the words that we say, will you say, yes, Jesus, I want to be generous and hospitable, and so I'll examine what I give and give what you want me to give because I do not want to reject you. Again, maybe you're giving exactly what Jesus wants, but the point is, are you asking him? And are you considering whether he's coming to you in this way saying, I want you to be like those good villagers who opens your home to me and opens yourself to me and opens yourself in such a way that you bless the church that I have founded and want to flourish. Jesus challenges us again and again. He challenges us very thoroughly in this gospel. But remember what I said at the beginning. Where Anglican said again and again, Jesus is loving and comforting. And I told you he's also dangerous. Don't forget that even while he's dangerous, he never leaves that loving, comforting, and merciful character behind. Jesus is someone who challenges us. But like I say, he is also like a divine parent. who not only makes us eat our broccoli, but also feeds us, protects us and helps us grow. As you're challenged, hold on to the comforting and loving Jesus you've always known, and know that even in the midst of the challenges he gives you, he will walk with you, he will pick you up when you fall, and he will love you even when you make the wrong choice. Let's run the risk of faith. Let's open our hearts to Christ in a new way, and let him lead us wherever he wants to lead us, knowing that with him as our companion, we are always safe, even when at times he is dangerous. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being someone who not only comforts, protects, and helps us, but also being a person who challenges us to be our best selves. We are often wrapped up and bound with worries and fears. We fall into ruts that are not comfortable, but are not um, ideal for us, but they're comfortable. Lord, when we are comfortable, we ask you to afflict us, push us out of our comfort zones, help us not to be satisfied with what is less than perfect. But help us also remember that you challenge us because we can't make ourselves perfect, but you can. Help us to remember that you challenge us because you want us to be vessels of your grace, to grow into the full stature of you, Christ, who is our Lord. Help us not only to call you Lord, but to let you be Lord in our lives. And give us confidence that when we do that, we will be transformed and made more whole than we can ask or imagine. 
Lord, you are the host in this church. We pray that you would enter in and make this church of St. Paul's the church you want it to be. And help us to move forward into the future knowing that wherever we go, you will walk with us, you will protect us, and you will be our true foundation. This we ask in your powerful name. Amen.